The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. Today, we're going to discuss what my guest describes as the app economy, how APIs are changing the world. We'll find out more about that in a minute. But first, as always, a bit about who you're listening to. I'm Guy Clapperton, a technology journalist and media trainer with 30 years experience. You might have seen me on the BBC occasionally, read some of my books or seen me in The Guardian, Intelligent Sourcing Magazine and elsewhere. I go to a lot of conferences and hear experts talking about their forecasts about the decades to come. I'd rather use my 30 years experience as a commentator to discuss what's likely to happen later this year, early next. And that's what I speak about at conferences. And of course, the action that we need to take now. So I came up with the Near Futurist name. Do have a look at my website, nearfuturist.co.uk, where you'll find more episodes and information on what I'm about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, do have a look at the showreel on the site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk. That's nearfuturist as one word. Or get in touch with my agent, whose details are, of course, also on the site. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or wherever you download from. And if you're new to the show, of course, you're very welcome. That's loads about me, so let's get to my guest for the show. He co-founded his company, MuleSoft, in 2006 on the idea that connecting applications should be easy, building on the open source Mule project he created three years earlier. He's responsible for the company's product strategy, open source leadership, engineering alignment, and direct engagement with customers. Before all this, he was Chief Executive Officer of SymphonySoft Limited, an EU-based company providing services and support for large-scale integration projects. And before that, he was Lead Architect for Rabobank and played a key role in developing one of the first large-scale ESB implementations in 2002. He's also worked with NatWest Bank, Credit Suisse, and UBS. He's Ross Mason. Ross, welcome. Hi. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks very much. Uh, first, Ross, uh, that was the cut-and-paste version, obviously. Tell us a bit about MuleSoft and your background for uh, people who don't know. What exactly are you trying to achieve? The focus of MuleSoft was always around helping people connect applications, data, and devices. And the thesis originally was it was a very difficult, and people were doing it in banks, and obviously my background was in banking and finance, uh, but I quickly realized that actually every organization on the planet is, is dealing with the problem of connecting things together, whether it's customer information, whether it's their products and services that they offer through mobile apps, through kiosks or back office systems. And so the idea of Mule was really to make it much easier to connect these things together in a pretty standardized way so people could get out of, of the, the plumbing of data and access to information and build more value on top. So how did you go about this? I, I've, I've mentioned the API economy. Perhaps in case people who don't uh, actually know, perhaps you could explain a bit about what they are and uh, why that matters in the economy. APIs are really interesting because they are the fundamental building blocks for innovation. Right. So if you think about the digital innovations that have happened over the last 10 years, you know, obviously on the iPhone and Android, uh, the apps that we use every day, all of those apps are sticks together using APIs. So the APIs are really the building blocks to grab payment information or grab maps or embed telephony inside an an application. So the idea of an API is purely, in my opinion, just a a digital building block for building new products and services, new processes. What does API stand for? 
application programming interface. Right. So it's basically it's actually the interface between the uh, say the map that's external to your phone and the app on your phone. Exactly. Got it's it. a bit like you think about commerce versus e-commerce. The idea of, of commerce is I have, a, I have a product and, and I provide it to my consumers. Well, APIs do the same thing. The API is a product and it's provided to consumers, which are typically app developers that build the applications that we use. Now, I can see that's uh, essential. It's, it's a bit like, you know, if you didn't have APIs from the sound, it would be a bit like living on an island in which there were no bridges and no planes to get people to and from the island. You know, you'd be very, become very lonely and very isolated very quickly. But you have mentioned the, the, this idea that there is an API economy. So why, how, why are APIs changing things? What, in what way is it creating a new economy? Well, what's interesting about APIs is they, they're not just pieces of software, but they actually represent new ways of thinking about business models, new ways, new ways of interacting with different groups of people. So what we saw on the, the rise of smartphones was these, these APIs were being embedded to provide new products and services that we all use. So, for example, you know, 15 years ago, if you wanted to build Uber, you'd have to build a, a mapping technology, you'd have to build, build a payments gateway, you'd have to have telephony services built into the Uber application. I'm assuming everyone knows what Uber is, of course. Hey, Whereas when Uber now, built yeah. that app, yeah, I think we do, right? So, but if you were to build the app today, the way they did it was they just took the services from Google and the services from Stripe who do provide payments and the services from um, Twilio that provide telephony services and they just stitched those things together. And what that did was a couple of interesting things. It allowed Uber to try out a new business model very quickly and scale it very quickly because they, they're outsourcing their services. But two, Uber itself became part of an API economy. It became a consumer of those services but Uber then also provided new services for other people to build on top of. So uh, Uber Eats is a great example of this where it's, uh, Uber Eats is actually a service for delivery of really food products right now, but it could be any product. But they open the API up to everyone. So McDonald's you, you know, uh, sits on the top of Uber Eats for delivery for McDonald's. And what's actually happening, there's this exchange, a digital exchange of value between all these different companies. And that's what comprises the sort of app or API economy. Obviously, the concept of the API economy, I can see why that's valid to a large extent. But I'm also aware that uh, your company itself is uh, heavily tied up in the API world. I'm just wondering, a cynic might ask, not that I'm a cynic, dear oh dear, no. Uh, but are there any vested interests going on here, would you say? Well, there's always some vested interest somewhere. So I, I, the way I look at it is, if you spend enough time looking into the future, it's natural to try and help shape it or even harness it in some way. With MuleSoft, we started with integration. So the, the idea of connecting applications together and pretty quickly we realized that actually APIs were going to be the standardized way for packaging up those connections for reuse by other people. So if anything, I think the market drove our strategy to some degree and we've just been very good at then harnessing it and helping enterprises start moving in that direction because we've seen it work so well in the consumer space but actually for you know big enterprises this has been a much slower and more difficult transition i suppose enterprises really have to worry about their shareholders and what, how they actually value their organizations in the longer term but if you're going to outsource everything or you're going to say yeah this bit came from google that bit came from uh, uh, stripe or whatever there is the issue of which part is actually your own intellectual property and therefore what your company is actually worth. Uh, do you think that's 
going to have a, um, a, is that being impacted? Is the valuations being impacted by the API economy? Yes, but not in that way. So I think if a company said, we're going to go and build our own mapping technology, except for Apple, who actually did do this, they would probably struggle in the market to be valued because the, I think the market is starting to understand that mapping technology is commoditized, right? Google's done a great job of commoditizing that piece of the, the landscape. And if enterprises start building that stuff, it probably means that they're not spending the right energy and thoughts on building the things that are going to buy, build more value for the company itself. So interestingly, where enterprises have their most value is in the, the customers and the services they already offer, and actually the digital footprint of all their data. And enterprises' challenges are is actually understanding what data they have about their customer and how they can deliver new product services across a very complex landscape of other systems that have been built up over 20 years. So it doesn't really affect their valuation. What does seem to affect it though is how well their digital strategy plays out. For example, if you look at McDonald's over the last three years and look at their share price, there's two things they've done that have dramatically changed their outcome. One is they've changed their franchise model to be a bit more effective. And the other one was they went very strong from the top down on a digital first strategy to offer new digital products and services. So now they have kiosks, they have mobile apps, and they're, they're driving billions of transactions a year through these new digital channels versus relying on stores and people to, to drive all the interactions. I suppose the cliche that we're both trying to avoid using, but let's, uh, let's get, it out in the, get it out there, is uh, in many ways, APIs uh, prevent you having to reinvent the wheel every time, don't they? I mean, if, if there is a perfectly good mapping technology out there, you might as well just harness that. Yeah, they do that. And also, they improve over time. If you think about it, if, if a million people are using the, the same mapping technology and Google is funding it or you know being paid for, for usage, it's going to improve over time as well. So not only do you get a better product from the outset, but it, you know it's going to improve over time. And you know, it's really just productization of, of a digital capability. I was going to ask about that because uh, one of the things, if you've got all these various components coming in uh, ready-made and continually uh, being updated, this could make for much easier innovation, uh, which sounds great. But uh, you know, could this actually change is happening so rapidly already? Is this actually going to accelerate the pace of change yet again? So I always look at the world in two halves when it comes to digital. I think about what the consumer space is doing and then what the enterprise is doing. And we've seen in the consumer space that we've almost sort of hit this app saturation. There hasn't been a ton of innovation on, on our smartphones over the last few years. There hasn't been any breakout apps because we've got the bulk of what we need to run our digital lives on these phones already. But the enterprise still has a long way to go. I mean, there's, there's still a, the next wave of digital innovation, I think, is where enterprises start to unlock their own data sets, their own capabilities, and offer much better products and services to consumers than was reasonably expected before. And by better, it might just be cheaper, but it might be also more, uh, more integrated into day-to-day lives or new business models, which we're starting to see, right? So if you look at InsureTech, which is a very, not that interesting part of the market, insurance doesn't excite people ever. But there's actually a lot of innovation happening there right now to give products and services to consumers that can take a different type of insurance. So if you look at someone like Metro Mile, they insure you for every mile you drive. So if you're an infrequent driver, then being insured by the mile makes a lot more sense. So we, we're getting these iterations of products that help 
a more niche part of the market, but there's lots more of these products helping different niches. So I think the innovation is not going to be big bang anymore. It's going to be gradual and just affecting different parts of the population at different times. I'm a little bit reluctant to say there will be no big bang because uh, I think it was the Victorians who first said that everything that has to be that could be invented has already been invented, and I think uh, we could uh, easily fall into the same trap if we're not careful. We'd, uh, and uh, you know, the hindsight can do terrible things. But uh, for the, let's take that as a working hypothesis. One thing that uh, is happening that I hear a lot is that uh, partly because of APIs, partly because they don't have to keep reinventing stuff, the IT department is going to have to become more business aware. And uh, that was certainly part of uh, what uh, the brief uh, today uh, suggested was your opinion, that you know, IT departments do need to be more businessy. First of all, can you clarify whether that is your view and also uh, how they're going to get the business skills they need uh, to, uh, in the business awareness to work in, in this way and harness these APIs? Actually, I, I do want to get back to Big Bang Innovation. I think it will happen. I just don't think it's going to happen in this area. Sure. But we'll talk about that later. On the IT being more business savvy, I, I think that's bounded around as, as you know, a little bit sloppy rhetoric sometimes. It is true that the IT organization needs to be more aware of what the business is doing. But just as much, the business needs to understand its role in um, adopting and leveraging IT products and services. Right? If you think about every organization, it now functions with software in every corner of the business. And having a centralized, purely centralized IT function doesn't really make sense anymore because the software and the information technology itself is not centralized. So having one group make the decisions about that doesn't really make sense. So what's actually going to happen is IT needs to actually take more ownership on the big business strategy around technology and how it's going to get leveraged. But the business also needs to take more ownership over the day-to-day running of certain types of IT products and services. And you're sort of seeing this in some companies where some of the IT ownership and management is becoming decentralized. And, you know, to tie this back to APIs, the the role of the API here is really the IT should be responsible for unlocking and making reusable building blocks of the data and services that are held in the core systems of any organization. But then it's up to the business to go and take those building blocks and build their own apps, their own processes on top of it. And I, I think that's the next big shift in the enterprises. You'll see the role of IT being more of a, a facilitator and really actually having a keen understanding of, of the business objectives in the next 18 months to three years. But the business functions will have more uh, autonomy to go and build things on top of the APIs, the standardized components that IT provides. At the beginning of that response, you did say that uh, you think there may be a big bang, just not necessarily in uh, the in this area. Where do you see the uh, next sort of wave of big bang innovations happening? Well, there's obviously the inter- the frontier of AI is is truly fascinating, and we're going to see, I think, in all walks of life, AI being leveraged to do pretty incredible things and terrifying things. But I also think, also think in biology, bioinformatics, and you know, the, the next sort of living machines will, be, will, will actually drive a lot more change in the kind of products and services that we can build. So I, I think it's not just about software, but it's really software you being used to model things that happen in the biological world to create new types of products, new types of innovations that just wasn't possible before. And right. 
I, I can't let a statement like uh, AI will be doing terrible things go without asking you uh, whether you had any specifics behind that. Well, we're in an interesting time, right? So on the one hand, we're, you know, MuleSoft is helping companies adopt AI and we're, we're helping AI be, be used for things like automation, uh, for discovery of new insights, et cetera. So on the one hand, I, I see a huge opportunity there to help companies embrace it. On the other hand, if you look at what's happening on the consumer space, you know, being a, a father of two daughters who are growing up in an era where fake news has sort of become one of the biggest news items out there, and understanding what happened in the, you know, what may have happened, sorry, in the U.S. election in 2016, and and what's going on with Facebook right now in terms of investigations, it's it's becoming clear that the software we're building or have been building over the last few years needs a different type of governance, and it's a governance that up till now has been sort of left in the hands of the corporates to govern themselves, and we're starting to realise that, especially with AI it's going to be very hard to describe these systems or describe boundaries for these systems. So we have to start thinking about new safeguards or at least new legislation to sort of box in how this technology gets used for ethical means, which I think is a really, really hard topic to, and when as soon as you bring ethics into anything, it's, you know, shades of gray, there's never really a black and white. So it's going to be very hard to manage. Yes. And the other thing, of course, is that if you start getting people to uh, put ethics into AI, you accidentally, uh, there have been documented cases where people have accidentally introduced their sets of ethics, which isn't necessarily the same as yours and my set of ethics or somebody in another part of the world from a different culture. I don't think there's any such thing as uh, a neutral set of ethics. Would you agree with that? Do you think that's a a reasonable starting point? Absolutely. You know, ethics and culture go hand in hand. And you can't really separate those two, which means there can't be a unified approach to ethics because there's no there's no unified culture across the world. And and that's kind of what makes the world interesting and unique and and special. The, The challenge is, I think, in my mind, it's accountability. And the fact that something can be built and can be misused to affect something as big as presidential election or even a prime you know prime minister election in my country that's very worrying and i, I think it's partly up to the uh, technology companies to really think through the software that they're building but they can't be left to them because again their their ethics and their culture isn't quite aligned with that of a of a, a government and I, I think that's the challenge and, it, and it, honestly i don't think I have, i've heard much I haven't read much that sort of said there's, there's really big, you know, there's a, a one size fits all solution here. So I think interestingly, each country might have to tackle this separately. Yet the idea that, you know, you tackle Facebook one way in the U S and one, you know, different way in Europe, is kind of doesn't really make a lot of sense because these, these platforms and these engines are global. And so we have to look at it as a, as a, you know, a global challenge, but we'll, we'll probably have to solve it locally first. Yes, and uh, I think you know, there are some companies making efforts in that uh, uh, in that way. Whether we agree with restricted restricted access to some of these services or not, it, it, it does appear to be to be possible. So, I mean, that's obviously a debate that's going to go on for quite some time. But I'm aware we are starting to run short of our own time. So, thanks very much indeed for, uh, for taking part today. Could I perhaps ask you uh, if you could tell the listeners uh, where they can find out more about you and uh, indeed MuleSoft. Yeah, obviously, uh, MuleSoft is at uh, MuleSoft.com. And then me, uh, probably the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Just do a search for Ross Mason. I got a lot of 
talks and debates out there. So I've talked about AI at, at length. Uh, so if you go to YouTube and search for me in AI, you'll see some of my, uh, my commentary and debates there as well. Excellent, I'll do so. Uh, Ross Mason of MuleSoft, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you so much. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. I'll be back in two weeks' time as always, and don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk. See you in a fortnight.